For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there, they camped there near the water. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking, To the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes, like frost, on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to take as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said to them, 
No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as he needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, This is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake, so bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come, so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the desert when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. The Israelites ate manna forty years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is one-tenth from an ephah. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we praise you that you are with us and among us in Christ. Your Spirit lives in us and guides us. So Father, this morning what we don't know about you, teach us. 
where we're prone to wander into sin, guide us. And Lord, show us areas where we might not be trusting you. Help us look to your word and teach us to live godly lives. God, this morning we pray that you would speak through Godwin. We thank you for this brother. We pray that you would continue to encourage him in strength in Christ. So Lord, be with him. Speak through him. For your glory we ask. Amen. Good morning. I want you to picture two families with me. You walk into the living room of family number one, and you notice a few things. You notice the parents are looking at a newspaper or watching television, and there's kids playing quietly and talking amongst themselves, and it's like the picture of a perfect world. And then as the kids start to get unruly, because that's what kids do, of course, the parents quickly and immediately respond. They offer correction, and when necessary, they offer a good spanking. The kids aren't perfect, but they get their act together pretty quickly. And even though there's some conflict and tension as you're observing this family, there's no doubt in your mind that these two parents, this mom, this dad, they absolutely love these children. Then there's family number two. Kids are playing quietly. The parents are watching TV. And as the kids start to get unruly, the parents are slow to react. In fact, they look over, they glance over, and they kind of roll their eyes at each other. Maybe they say a few words, but it's clear that the kids are not getting the message. Their unruliness, of course, gets worse and worse and worse. As you look at this family, as you look at these parents, you begin to wonder, do these parents actually love those kids? What kind of parent is God? What kind of father is God? Listen to how our heavenly father treats his children. This is from Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Just like a good father, just like a good mother disciplines and trains their children out of love, so too our heavenly father disciplines us and trains us out of love. In fact, if you are being disciplined, then it is a sign of God's love for you. It's a sign that you have been adopted into his family. Now, back in the Old Testament, God had some sons and daughters too, the nation of Israel. They were his chosen people. They were his adopted children, and and God had just brought them out of Egypt. God had just taken them across the Red Sea, and now they were headed to the Promised Land. But along the way, God needed to train them, and God needed to discipline them. So he took them into the wilderness. I wonder, are you, are you friends, some of you, many of you, maybe all of us here in the room, are we in the wilderness right now? Maybe God has brought great victory and celebration into your life, just like he did for Israel. They were just a minute ago singing the song of Moses. But then immediately after that, you find yourself lost and confused and troubled and unsettled. 
just like Israel. Maybe you've received a difficult diagnosis recently. Maybe one of your friendships is strained. Maybe one of maybe you, you just feel lonely and isolated in life right now. Maybe your future is uncertain. Maybe the Lord has revealed some sin in your heart, sin in your life, and you're in the process of repentance, and you find yourself in the wilderness. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, once said that the wilderness is the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. Because if you're in the wilderness, God has something to teach you. That's what he's saying. Well, if you're in the wilderness this morning, what might God be teaching you? I want to point out three lessons Israel learned in the wilderness from the passage that was just read for us. And often these are the lessons that God wants to teach us as well in the 21st century. I'm going to pray one more time and then we'll look at this passage. Father, you are our good shepherd. And you love us. And you take us not only through seasons of joy and celebration by streams and rivers of water and green grass. Father, you take us into the wilderness. You take take us into the deep, dark valley. But you are there with us. And, oh, Father, we are so grateful for your presence. And, Father, we are grateful that you have things to teach us when we are there. So would you teach us now in Jesus' name? Amen. So the first lesson that God had for Israel was obedience. He wanted to teach them obedience. This is the end of chapter 15, this episode in Marah. I want you to look at verses 22 through 24. Let's read these together. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Three days without water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Just like that, Israel went from triumph to testing, from exuberant singing and celebration to exuberant grumbling and complaining. You know, it reminds me a little bit of of Paul's words to the Philippians. He said, you know this verse probably, do everything without grumbling or complaining. I mean, that that just, you read that verse and you're like, "That's, that's impossible, Paul. Are you kidding me? Well, Israel probably would say the same thing. They found that to be very difficult as well. Now, notice that, uh, that, that the, the, the Moses here doesn't say that Israel groaned or that Israel cried out to God. Groaning is not grumbling. And I want to make a distinction here. Groaning actually is a biblical practice. Lamenting is a biblical practice. It's okay. and some, it, It's something I think many of us don't do as often as we should when we're hurting. The psalmists affirm lamenting. Paul in the book of Romans talks about how God's children groan in this age. They groan in this age as they wait for the age to come. But grumbling is something entirely different. Groaning says, God, this is hard. I don't understand. It hurts. I can't think straight. And I desperately need your help to get through today. There are lots of godly examples of groaning in Scripture. 
But grumbling is another animal. It's, it's not a humble cry to God for help. Grumbling says, I don't trust you. I think I can run this universe a little better than you can. That's the attitude behind grumbling and complaining. Instead of saying, God, this really hurts, but I'm ready to receive whatever I must from your hand, grumbling says, this is just plain dumb, and I'm ready to rebel against your hand. So when you walk into the wilderness, brothers and sisters, are you a groaner or are you a grumbler? I know there are some kids in the room, although I think they dismissed through fifth grade, so maybe there's not as many kids in the room. Kids, do you grumble and complain against your parents? I remember when I turned 13, it was like a switch of revelations. All of a sudden, my parents became really dumb. You know, just like that. I mean, it went from, I was 12, mommy and daddy, you're the greatest. I was 13, mommy and daddy, you're morons. I started complaining all the time as a teenager because I thought I knew better than they did, right? That's what we do. Well, kids, if that's your attitude and you've started complaining against your parents, I want to suggest to you that you should have a conversation with them. You can say something like this, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry for my bad attitude. I'm sorry for my complaining spirit. Please forgive me. Can I have 20 bucks now? And here's the thing, they, they just might give it to you in that moment. So Israel grumbled. But notice what Moses did. Moses cried out to God. Moses cried out to God on Israel's behalf. In fact, that's what Israel should have done. So when you're in the wilderness, be like Moses. Cry out to God. Groan on behalf of yourself and those around you that might be hurting. When you hurt, when it doesn't stop, when you go through something confusing and you need to give vent to all those feelings because sometimes our our hearts are like a cauldron of emotions and disappointments, right? What do you do with all that stuff? You don't stuff it. You groan. You groan. You lament. So brothers and sisters, groan in the wilderness, but don't complain. Don't grumble. Verses 25 and 26 give us a little bit more about what God is trying to do here. Look at the second half of verse 25. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So God is instructing them and testing them. Now, the Hebrew word there for test can also convey a sense of training, a formative discipline. In other words, God was, was testing the worth of his people's faith and obedience. Yes, he was doing that, but he was also training them up so that their faith and obedience will grow. That's why the bitter water at Mara. Clement of Alexandria uh, was one of the earliest Christian leaders, and, and he said as he was pondering this passage, he said, God led his people into, into the wilderness that he might root out the evils which had clung to them by a long-continued familiarity with the customs of the Egyptians. 
You see, the Israelites had not fully learned to love and trust and obey God. They were just getting started with that. They, they had had a different master back in Egypt. And liberation from Egypt didn't mean autonomy for Israel. Liberation from Egypt meant they have a new master, and his name's Yahweh. And they needed to learn what it looked like to live under God's rule. Now, this idea that the Lord brings difficulty into our lives, seasons of trial into our lives to train us to be obedient, it's, it's not a new idea. Listen to two verses from the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. This is one of my favorite verses. It is good for me to be afflicted. It is good for me to be afflicted. Why? So that I might learn your decrees. I wonder whether there are some here today who are in the wilderness and the reason for these difficult and confusing circumstances is because God is trying to get your attention. God is trying to teach you something, and pain is God's megaphone for you. He's trying to point out an area of your heart or an area in your life where there is some deficiency, there's some disobedience, there's some unholiness. He's trying to hand you a mirror and help you to see yourself as he sees you. And in that way, this pain in your life, this wilderness journey is actually grace. Because God is teaching you to be his true son and his true daughter. He is disciplining those he loves. Maybe right now you recognize that God is, is putting a finger on something in your life. Well, let me make a suggestion Set aside some time this afternoon to read through Psalm 51, which is, which is a, a psalm about repentance. And let that psalm lead you back to God. As you're in the wilderness, let that psalm lead you to repentance. Now notice at the end of chapter 15, God has brought them to a new place with drinkable water, this place called Elam. It's got 12 springs. God may take us from triumph to the wilderness, but it doesn't take long for him to also bring us back into a good place so we can hope in him for that. But of course, Elam is just a stop because from Elam, they went to a large desert, interestingly enough, called Sin, right? So that's chapter 16, and that's where the second lesson we see God teaching his people in the wilderness, and that lesson is dependence. First lesson was obedience. The second lesson is dependence. This is a big chapter. There's a lot of details in this chapter. I'm only going to touch on a few of them. You may have a lot of questions after I get through here. That's okay. So in this desert, once again, the whole community begins to grumble because they had no food. You've been on road trips before and you're in the car and, and maybe in the middle of the day, you kind of turn to each other and realize, wait a second, we're all really hungry. And then you look up, it's like 10 seconds later, and you see a sign that says, no rest stop for like 60 miles or something bananas like that, you know, and then you become hangry. Have you heard of this term before? Hang so it's hunger, angry, shove it together, hangry, right? So the people of Israel, they were hangry, right? And can you believe that they forgot so quickly how God provided for them in Mara and Elam just a minute ago? Well, we, of course, forget too easily how God provides for us. 
but he still does. He still provides. The basic story here, look at verse 12. The Lord says to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So God miraculously provides this manna, this the special bread by day and quail meat by night. And he gives them two commandments, basically. He says, first of all, take only what you and your family need for this particular day. Don't take any extra because I'm going to provide more tomorrow. The second thing he says is on the sixth day, take enough for two days because on the seventh day, I want you to rest. Now, the lesson in this is at the end of verse 12. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So what exactly is he teaching them about himself in this passage, in this section? Well, it's that God is always dependable. God is always dependable. He will provide exactly what you need and when you need it. But, of course, the way he teaches them this lesson is fascinating, right? He only provides what they need each day. Each day. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is the way God works. The book of Jeremiah Uh, excuse me, in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says that God's mercies are new every morning. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and in that prayer he says, hey, I want you to pray like this. Pray that God would give us our daily bread. And here he drops this special heavenly wafer for his people each day. This is the kind of trusting that is so hard. In the wilderness, we feel anxious. In the wilderness, we want assurances. We want to be given more now so we can feel secure about the future. We want the comfort of knowing that this week and this month are taken care of, not just today. But God gives us our daily bread each day. Now, what God is doing is he's cutting the root of anxiety in our hearts. Because he knows our hearts. He knows that we want to control things. We want to fix things. We want to plan things perfectly. But he looks at Israel. He looks at us today and he says, child, here's what you need for today. That's it. Tomorrow I'm going to have more, but don't you worry about tomorrow just yet. And what a great lesson for those of us in the wilderness, right? Great lesson for us. He wants you to take it one day at a time. Uh, when I was on the Cape, about a, about a year ago, I was on the Cape with my family, and um, I was at this little touristy shop. I hate touristy shops, but I happened to be in this touristy shop, and I found this uh, piece of wood, and I, I have it in my office. One day at a time. See that? And I, I've been looking at this thing for 12 months now, and uh, what, a, what a great lesson for me, and perhaps it's a great lesson for you too as you're in the wilderness Take it one day at a time. He gives us manna daily. He gives us bread daily. Today, he's going to provide what we need to get through today's tasks and trials. So, friends, don't waste today's grace on tomorrow's troubles. Don't waste today's mercies on tomorrow's trials. That's what we do, and it makes us anxious. Take it one day at a time. What that means practically, I think, is... As you approach your day, as you approach your morning, what do you have in front of you? Oh, Lord, help me 
Help me with these meetings. Give me grace to be generous and, and forgiving and loving in these meetings with my coworkers. Oh, Lord, this afternoon I, I'm taking my kids to the zoo. Oh, help me to love them and be there in the moment with them at the zoo. Oh, tonight I'm going to go home. I'm going to be awful tired. I've got to love my spouse. Oh, Jesus, help me when I'm tired to love my spouse. You have given me grace today and, and, and lean into that grace for today. One day at a time. Another lesson that we see here about dependence is found in 27 through 30. Let me read these words to you. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Looking for manna, none on the seventh day, just like God said he'd do. Verse 28, then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where he is on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. What's the lesson here? It's related to dependence as well. Take a break. God wants us to regularly rest. Wilderness life, of course, it pushes us to become frenzied and frantic because we're scared, we're anxious. God wants us to rest. I don't like to rest. I like to get stuff done. I can be driven about this, but in, in the last several years, God has shown me I need to learn some things. He's given me a mirror. He's helped me to see that, oh, oh, oh wait a second, there's an independent spirit in there. There's some, there's some pride and control lurking underneath my drivenness. What's behind a person who doesn't rest are these, these kinds of things and probably more. You know, I, I wonder when I'm in that zone of being driven, will God really provide for me if I, if I take a break? Will God really come through if I stop working for a minute? And so God brought some circumstances into my life a few years ago that forced me not only to look at my own heart, but it forced me to rest. Those circumstances were children. That'll slow you down a little bit, right? So God says to us driven workers today, take a day off. Rest. Because when you sleep and rest, I'm still working. That's what God's saying. I will still provide. You can depend on me. One of the greatest joys in life is when you're totally exhausted and you're, you just want to pull that, you know, ejection cord in your life and then someone turns to you, to you and says, hey, um, why don't you go take a break? I'll take care of that. I'll take, you, you put your feet up. I'll take care of that. It's so refreshing, right? Well, that's exactly what God does for his people. So if you're in the wilderness at work and you're tempted to put the pedal to the metal, uh, keep being faithful but don't overwork the project. Take some time off. You know, uh, unplug from your work email. Be with your family. Rest and pray. Maybe you're in the wilderness here at church as a leader. Maybe you're weary and tired and ministry work just won't stop. Well, keep being faithful, but don't overthink and overanalyze and overprepare. Maybe invite someone else to step in. And lead on your behalf for a little while. Take a week off ministry. Because here's the deal. It's okay. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. 
Does he use you? Of course he does, but he doesn't need you. So you can rest and you can pray while you rest. Are you in the wilderness at home right now? Maybe you're a mom and you've had it with your kids. What do you do? Do you read tons of parenting books and blogs and seek out counsel and become frantic in your parenting? There's nothing wrong with reading things so that you can grow. But where is your heart? Where is your heart? Ask your spouse maybe to take over for a minute so you can unplug and unwind. Do what you can to rest and pray. Pray to the God who is the only one who can order your life. You see, rest is an expression of trust in a dependable God. That's what I think is underneath this passage. Rest is a demonstration of deep humility. Because when you rest, you're saying, there's only so much I can do. Ultimately, God is the one who makes things happen. So those are the first two lessons we see here. First, obedience. Second, dependence. And lastly, we see submission. We're going to look at the section, short section in chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Let me read it for you. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? The people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us, uh, to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Lesson here is one of submission. Israel gets to Rephidim. They have no water. Once again, you think they would have learned by now that God is going to provide. So, hey, throw up some prayers and ask God for help. You can trust him, right? They don't do that. They demand God's provision. We see that in verse 2. Give us water to drink. They question his protection. Look at verse 3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us our, and our children and livestock die of thirst? They even doubt his presence. Look at the end of verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? In fact, it's not only God who's doing the testing uh, towards his people here. It's actually Israel who's testing God because they're so fed up with God that they begin to test him. They want God to prove himself to them. And that's quite an attitude of defiance, right? They've gone from general grumbling to outright defiance. In fact, the Hebrew word for quarrel in verse 2 means to bring a formal charge. It's not just kind of scattered grumbling here and there. They're bringing a formal charge to Moses to bring to God. So the penny hasn't dropped yet for Israel. They still don't totally trust God in the wilderness. And now they're defying him. And what they need to do, of course, is submit to him. 
Good thing we're different though, right? No, we're not different. God takes us back into the wilderness and our response is, we've been here before, Lord. Why, why are we here again? Why are you doing this again to us? And we get more angry and we get more concerned and we begin to defy God in subtle ways in our hearts. But maybe we're back because we haven't learned the lesson that he wants to teach us. Maybe he's been trying to get our attention over and over again and we kind of brush him to a side. And so you're back to that trial yet again. You're back to those circumstances yet again. Good parenting, again, says, hey, you're going to keep on it. Bad parenting says you let off the pedal a little bit, and you let them do what they want. Well, God, of course, is a good father. He keeps on it. He cares too much about us to leave us to our own devices. So sometimes he needs to spank us not just once or twice or 10 times, but 20 and 30 times, right? And it's not fun, but he's there doing it for our good because he loves us. If you're in the wilderness, one question to ask yourself is, has God been trying to get my attention and I have refused to listen to him? Where is there hardness in my heart? Where do I need to need some softening and, and some more submitting? Three lessons Israel learned in the wilderness. Three lessons we learn in the wilderness as well. We learn to obey God. We learn to depend on God. And we learn to more fully submit to God in the wilderness. Brothers and sisters, let's be honest. Many of us today are in the wilderness. There are marriages here today that are in the wilderness. There are individuals and children here today that are in the wilderness. And it is not easy. Our church, in some ways, is in the wilderness. The question isn't whether or not we are there or whether or not God will eventually bring us there. The question is, what will we do when we get there? Will we keep singing the song of Moses when triumph turns into testing? Will we groan or will we grumble? Will we learn to depend daily on God or frantically and anxiously try to control things? Will we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God's good and perfect will? Or will we try to test God and harden ourselves against God? Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness without food and water. He was tempted in all kinds of ways, probably in every way that we would be tempted in the wilderness. But he made it through without grumbling and complaining. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the manna that came down from heaven. He's the bread that meets our every spiritual need. And according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Jesus was the rock that was struck. Because he was struck at the cross for sinners. And from him flows living waters to those who believe. This is the good news, brothers and sisters, of the wilderness you're in the wilderness, here is the good news. Jesus provides what you need and when you need things in the wilderness. He provides forgiveness. He provides rest for your souls. He provides encouragement. He provides peace. And, and most importantly, what we all desire in the wilderness, he provides his presence. Oh, oh, oh if we could just have a sense of his presence with us, it would be okay, right? 
He is the good shepherd that leads us by streams of waters, and he leads us through deep, dark valleys. In the wilderness, we walk a tightrope. Wonderful blessings, wonderful opportunities, wonderful lessons just ahead of us as we're carefully tiptoeing across that tightrope. But evils and darkness and dangers and temptations on either side of us. And boy, is it easy to fall into that. Thankfully, we are not alone on the tightrope. Jesus is there with us, and we are there for each other. We are there for each other. Oh, that we would be a people who learn to cling to our good and faithful Father when the storms hit. Oh, that we would learn to be a family, a family who arm in arm and shoulder to shoulder hold each other up and encourage one another as we stumble through the wilderness. So my dear friends, please, as you travel through the pains and strains of the wilderness, don't let go of your faithful God. Don't let go of your faithful God and don't let go of each other. So you guys are going to need each other in the wilderness. God has much to teach us. He has much to refine in us. Remember that in his training regiment for us, perhaps the most important thing he wants to get across is for us to know him, love him, and cherish him above all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful again that you walk with us through the valley of deep darkness, that you hold our hands as we are walking through the wilderness, that when we're confused, when we're hurting, uh, when there's a trial in our life, we don't know what to say or do. You are there with us, and you are training us to know you and love you more. You are teaching us important lessons. Oh, Father, would you help us? Help us to remember that. Help us to look in the mirror so that we can grow in holiness. Help us not grumble. Help us to groan to you because you are loving, Father, and you can handle that. Be with us, Lord, as we go from this place. Be with us now as we take the body and the blood of Christ and as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross so that we can have living waters. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.